Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking to Professor Dale Tolliday, who has more than three decades of experience working with people who have sexually harmed others. He was awarded an Order of Australia medal in 2014 in recognition of this work. Dale is the Sydney Children's Hospital Network Senior Clinical Advisor for the Children and Young People's Sexual Safety Program, or SIPS. It's a statewide program for children under 18 years that also incorporates the respected New Street Service and Safeways program. We tap into Dale's decades of experience in this episode, particularly regarding fatherhood and the often unspoken taboos about what causes some dads to sexually abuse their children, why some siblings engage in harmful sexual behaviour and how best to respond. Dale also consults widely, both nationally and overseas, because of his expertise in how best to prevent and respond to harmful sexual behaviour by children, adolescents and adults. He's co-authored a book about children and their sexual safety called Therapy with Harming Fathers, Victimised Children and Their Mothers After Parental Sexual Assault, Forging Enduring Safety, in which he shares insights from his time working with harming fathers and their families. Dale, we really want to hear about some of this extensive research you've done as well as your your practical work, particularly in this area of fathering, which of course you were a co-author in a a really significant book. What were some of the main complexities that you found and the the challenges of working with fathers who have sexually offended against their children? Well, it's first of all, it's quite a different subject to, to children because adult people and Parents, fathers, stepfathers are not on the developmental trajectory that children and young people are. They are adults. They've had the opportunity to develop a perspective and should have a recognition and understanding about the significance of the behaviours and so on. We found in the... It was the early 1990s when we started doing that work that very few of the men were able to adopt or take a position of responsibility for their behaviour and frequently their partners, the mothers, were blamed or held responsible in some way for not protecting their children. And I I must say, assessing the protectiveness of mothers is a theme that continues to this very day. Quite inappropriate, because in the father-daughter space of sexual assault, 
the mothers are also victims. And uh, there, there were key dynamics that we were able to um, uncover about how that operated. It was um, very positive in terms of the recovery of the young people and their mothers. If we could integrate or, or pull together the experiences of the uh, young people and their mothers, and they could both get to a point of recognising how they were deceived and uh, and um, and kept from being able to, to uh, reach out to each other and understand each other's experience, particularly the mother kept at arm's length from her daughter, um, we were able to get a positive outcome. When we had a framework where those men could actually be encouraged to take responsibility, a significant proportion of them were able to do this. And the interesting thing in terms of the outcome for the men is that we had world-leading outcomes of the men not appearing in criminal data later. Um, this was um, shown in a 20-year sort of follow-up that was done by Professor Jane Goodman. So less recidivism? Yeah. Less recidivism, mm. less. I mean, we'd love to have zero, mm. um, but uh, there was less recidivism. One of the issues with the men that was interesting also is that from the very beginning, we noticed in a significant proportion of the men that they told us that they first did this when they were adolescents and the people who they harmed were um, their siblings or cousins, typically, or perhaps other closely known young people. So that prompted us to do a couple of things. One is to uh, start lobbying for services, which eventually came. The New Street services are for young people with harmful sexual behaviour. But also, we wanted to drill into this more because we found that the population of men who harm children is a different population to the earlier in life, young people who harm other young people. And what I mean is about 97% of the young people who are detected for harmful sexual behaviours don't appear in the adult stats. People would find that surprising because I think that's a bit of a belief really held in the community that if this happens when you're young, that's sort of the trajectory that you're on. Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's an incorrect belief and particularly with good supports, the, those young people... Uh, we, I tell people that I think the, outs, the outcomes can be outstanding and we can get young people on a really good track. The adults, though, who've harmed children and who tell us... So I'm talking about men who in the 90s were telling about their, their adolescence that would have been in the 70s um, or perhaps earlier. Um, it'd be interesting to have a look at an adult population now to see whether we've got the same thing, but it's, they're, they're different ponds if, if can, or different pools of people. Um, the work with young people is not just responding to harm, it's actually by responding we're preventing. And the main risk that we're responding to with young people isn't about harm when they become adults, it's about other harm that might happen right now if we don't respond. You mentioned you touched on, on New Street there. Could you tell us a bit more about that and really it's uh, some of those, those main considerations that you have when you're addressing child sexual abuse in that family environment in your work there? Yeah, New Street's a, a New South Wales health program for children and young people aged between 10 and 17 where they're, they're of an age where it's, they're potentially legally responsible uh, for their behaviours. Uh, there is a response for children in the youth justice system, so we were set up for those young people who weren't going into that youth justice system. It turns out the vast majority don't meet the criteria and the thresholds for prosecution. And so we're working with uh, a group of young people, predominantly voluntarily, on their part and their family. Uh, maybe not so voluntary for some of the young people the first day, but once we see people, they tend to stick because 
our approach is to be holistic, interested in the young people, not punishing, but also not stepping away from the reality that they may have done things or something to somebody that's been profoundly harmful. Again, it's a bit hard to define the ponds of, or the groups. I think of them as sort of ponds, but the young people that come to us um, for therapeutic response, um, we've now got uh, a network of new streets across New South Wales. About a half have harmed a sibling. Uh, which was something we didn't foresee. We knew there would be siblings there at the beginning and um, some of the earlier research was suggesting to us it might be about 25%. Now this is not a population based thing, this is a proportion of those who come to us. So it might reflect the dilemma that families are in when they've got both one child who's harmed and another child who's been harmed in the same family group. It may reflect that, though there has been a, uh, a national uh, study in the US that was uh, published a bit over 10 years ago that came up with a figure of 50% as well. So it sounds like those interventions are quite key. We, we can't underestimate that. It's really critical work. Yeah, we need to find a way to name the behaviour for what it is and free people up from many of the restraints they've got to how to respond. So we made the mistake, I think, of over-criminalising our responses for children in Australia. And we could see this in the 1990s. Those of us in the treatment field, we did not want to follow the US way of approaching this as a justice response. We wanted this to be, a, if you like, a health or whole of, uh, whole of life response or a, a non-justice based response in terms of outcomes. Because if a young person is charged with a criminal offence, they are due correctly with all of the protections of the legal system. They should have legal representation to decide how they're going to plead. Many of these instances are one person's uh, report against a pers another person's uh, defence. And there's then also a delay. So we see in the justice system young people might have delays of up to 12 months, sometimes more, between something being disclosed and not. They might be def typically defending it or not entering a plea. So they're not really in a position to enter into a therapeutic program because they, to go into a therapeutic program, they, they need to be acknowledging to some degree, at the very least at the outset, the behaviours. And so to do that then puts them in, in line for more severe criminal outcomes. And it prevents them getting the help. It prevents them getting the help. And the parents want to protect their children mm -hmm. uh, as well. So it's not that the parents are in denial. The parents are actually trying to protect their children. So mm -hmm. we've been working on trying to get uh, agreement of having a system of response that recognises the significance and severity of behaviour, mm -hmm. but at the same time has um, is characterised by a um, holistic response for children and their families that's engaging. We really don't want to see lifelong consequences as there are at the moment so young people may face a lifelong consequence of not being able to work with children in the future finding a working with children check it's unlikely but possible uh, that young people could have other kinds of impediments as well placed as a result of behaviors as a child or young person i should also say when we look at this age range of 10 to 17 the backgrounds of the children that we see is predominantly marginalised young people who've been disadvantaged in various ways and have a high presence of complex trauma in their own lives that they've experienced. So this is a complicated bundle of, 
of uh, circumstances. We have some young people where there's no trauma and they're in the minority coming through our doors. The majority of the young people we see have got complex trauma, around about a half or a bit under in out-of-home care, uh, same proportion, not the same young people, the same proportion have a diagnosed or assessed disability uh, of some kind. And so they are really in difficult straits in terms of uh, their ability to have an influence over their own lives at the point that the behaviour is detected. Yes, there's a few aspects there to unpick. I think uh, you mentioned disability. I imagine, and this links back to what we were saying before about technology as well, I mean, for people with cognitive challenges or intellectual disabilities, it must be very hard to distinguish between if they've got access to porn, which is now so accessible, uh, and like you say, what is life and what is reality? That must be very difficult for you to, to, to deal with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we hoped at the beginning that disability expert providers would be able to be in this space. We now recognise that that can't happen without, without us partnering. Uh, we also recognise we're not disability experts, so it's really a collaboration. And what we've developed in terms of our response over the, over the 25 years that New Street's been in, in place is that we need to have partnership agreements across agencies wrapped around young people and families uh, without an expectation of of us being the lead of that or of it always being Department of Communities and Justice or it always being, we just wrap the services around the young person, meet together, develop a strategy and plan, hopefully together with the young person and family and, uh, and determine our responsibilities, the lines of communication and the key activities of our intervention. The other thing that we've done that's uh, from the outset here in Australia that's different to the US is we've insisted that the work be family engaged. Mm. How important is that to have that family oriented response? Uh, I'll say two things. I'll, I'll try and limit myself to two things. <laughs> um, our research shows us the kids that do worst um, are the ones who don't complete um, a therapeutic process. So those kids probably also sit as a population within a population of kids that never access service but once people come through our doors and start working with us if they complete the process the results are fabulous if they don't the the we know that that pop, that group not all of them but that group holds the greater risk so um, we've had to adjust ourselves around that some key work by a person in the US called Jamie Yoda identified that the one single factor that predicts whether or not somebody completes the therapeutic process is the engagement and ongoing connection of family with the therapeutic process. Now for us we've amplified that a little bit more and we provide therapy for the parents themselves as well as for the child. So it's not just for the parents in terms of their parenting, it's parenting for them for the challenges that they identify they face in, in, in the space of their life we find that there are a lot of interactions between the parents' challenges and the, and the child's developmental challenges, the child's trauma history, and so on. Overcoming shame would be a big part of that. People are just riddled with shame. I mean, parents are angry, and sometimes parents will sort of speak very negatively about the child who's engaged in the harmful behaviours, but what's sitting behind that is, um, is pain, that a child of theirs has done this not knowing why and how it's come about and feeling a deep sense of shame. 
How does the victim fit into this picture as well, Dale, particularly at, at New Street? How, I mean, we're talking about shame and for, for them that must be a crucial part of recovery too. How do we help victims overcome that, that sense of culpability? But I think one of the key things to recognise is for a victim of any form of child sexual abuse, validation and support are the two key factors. So acknowledgement of the reality of what happened to them, belief, and, and a belief that's empathic, so, so f particularly we're thinking parents, so for a parent to know something about what it was like for the child, mm. to ex have experienced this, to have not been able to be helped, to not, to not have been noticed or heard, not been able to speak up, they might have been subject to, to some sort of threats, they might have been tricked into the behaviour, but their, their experience of the harm. In terms of the New Street work, we're working with young people wanting them to actually incorporate into their response a reaching out, not necessarily directly to the child because the, it may not be helpful for the child who's harmed them to reach out to their actual victim, but we want validation, we want clarity about that and recognition. We have three principles in our program, safety, wellbeing and restitution. So restitution is about trying to do their best to make good. You can't actually restore to the previous condition, the people's relationships, etc. But it's significant, and it's significant in the recovery of the young people who do the harming for them to be able to recognise that there are things that they can do that can be helpful for a child who they've harmed. In the bundle of kids we see, many are horrified when they face the reality of what the impact of their behaviour has been on others. Often they come to us and they are feeling intensely the impact on themselves of disclosure being made and of all the whole world changing around them uh, with this. Um, but when they get to a position when they can actually see and hear and recognise how this has impacted on their own parents, their own family, another child, school community, uh, whatever the context is, they can become quite horrified at themselves. We think that's probably a good sign. We want to help them, support them through and past that. Coming back to fathers, just the interesting aspect of fathers and the effect that particularly the hypermasculine fathers do have as well on the behaviour of some children. Yeah, I think it's really easy to recognise now the place of hypermasculinity and there's you know a bit of a surge at the moment. Um, um, with some online influence for young males, etc. But when I say that's easy, actually our stock standard models of masculinity and how they underpin entitlement and privilege for the behaviour of young men is a core part of what the therapeutic process needs to incorporate, in our, in our opinion. Mm. It's not in all treatment responses. Um, it's in other treatment responses when they see the hypermasculinity. I think actually we've got to be a bit more subtle uh, in how we understand the, the impact of this, including in outcomes. So we've just stepped out of a, of a seminar to do this interview. When we're talking about, and in there they're talking about schools and school communities. Well, if there's been an incident in a school community, where does the privilege lie in terms of discomfort and comfort at school if there are two students at the same school post an event? What's the position of a young male uh, towards another student, be it male or female. We're usually seeing male, female, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what, you know, how can he take responsibility in that? Or is he going to be privileged in some way? Or is the school going to say, you're both equal? When in fact, I would think restorative processes after harmful sexual behaviour, it's not a question of 
equality, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of measuring the need and providing an opportunity for a young man to actually take a strong position of recognition. We've seen in our space sometimes um, young people moving school. Sadly, it's often the child has been harmed. And that must be even more disruptive. Well, it's disruptive. It breaks down um, friendship and um, developmental relationships. The other thing that can happen in, in that context, though, is what's the story in the, in the local school community about what happened? So, you know, and if there's a, a message of blame, so actually if that's the case, that's blaming the, the victim, that's, a, not, that's an ongoing abuse. That's not an a, a impact of abuse, that's ongoing abuse. And that needs to be addressed. Probably up to the system to name that um, and, and to take a strong position. It sounds like the work you're doing in New Street is just so important. Are there similar places that people can go in other states? Post the Royal Commission, there's work being done in all states and territories mm. to try and establish responses that fit the local context. Each state or territory is different uh, at, at the moment. So New South Wales, in terms of having a, a vision of a whole-of-jurisdiction response, was probably their second. Um, I think Victoria was there first. Both Victoria and New South Wales have got a, quite a, uh, a complex of, uh, of services. Both of us are looking for further um, refinements and so on. Um, sadly, in some places in Australia, there, there are still not services that people can access. Mm. And I imagine particularly for, for rural and remote people? Yeah, in the New Street services in New South Wales have pretty well rolled out with funding when there's been an evaluation or a government inquiry that's identified there's a need so that we started with one service um, that was announced during the first uh, Wood Royal Commission in, which was the commission into the alleged police protection of pedophiles. Mm -hmm. Sydney-based service, the day we opened our books we had to close them a few, about an hour later we were just overwhelmed because there was no other service, there was going to be a free government service. We were then evaluated, we set an evaluation up from the start, the evaluation was positive, we were funded then through the Aboriginal Child Sexual Assault Task Force recommendations to set up a rural service. Uh, as we unfolded over time, um, strategically we looked at the landscape and opted to make sure, particularly with the, inf with the funding that came through the New South Wales Government's response to the Royal Commission, to establish services in regional and rural New South Wales. We have two services in the Sydney area at the moment and the thinking behind that or the reality behind that is in the regional rural areas many of them had no providers that could actually respond. We have had to meet and continue to meet the issue of how to support specialist providers in rural and regional areas and in the Sydney area there is a large population of private providers who can be another base of providing some services though still that doesn't meet the need of people who haven't got the resources to um, purchase a service. So still some work to be done, but it sounds like there has been some progress and that inquiry has brought some, yeah, some progress. Yeah, I'm, I'm really quite pleased and proud of the uh, development of those, uh, those services. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just to, to loop back, I did notice that you were involved in the first international day focused on siblings and sexual abuse. And that was only in April this year. Um, we, we touched on it a bit earlier, but, but why is it important to, to recognise that harmful sexual behaviour when it occurs between siblings? What's different about that? Look, I'm, Nance, I'm hesitant, but I'm going to sort of just change one of the words. Sure. And uh, it's not behaviour that's between siblings. 
it's behaviour of one sibling towards another. And one of the great misnomers is that if it's behaviour between siblings, they're both engaging in something that's naughty, wrong, or etc. There are, and certainly occasions, and lots of examples of siblings showing interest in each other's bodies and uh, and development, and and particularly with younger children, or even older children, teenagers giving each other coaching on um, sexual development and and etc. That's not abuse. But when we're talking about sibling harmful sexual behaviour, you've got one sibling who's generally older or more knowledgeable or more able actually enacting in the in their very, very important relationship as a sibling sexual behaviours, which is terribly damaging. Oh, um, that's a very important distinction. Yeah, and look, the reason I, I, I raise it is because it's frequent. Um, yes. And, and um, we've got a training video that we use that's an interview with a mum and she talks about this with her children and she uses that word and she said, well, when she discovered, she didn't know where to go or what to do, so she sat them down together and told them that it needed to stop and they both promised her that it would stop. Well, what position was an 11-year-old girl in to, to make a promise to stop her brother doing what he'd been doing, etc.? And in, in that particular case, he didn't stop. In those really complex cases is it is there recovery possible I know that you've you've spoken about how the programs you have have such good success but it's so hard to imagine at times uh, it absolutely is possible um, and the earlier the intervention the better um, and it needs to um, attend to the needs of each of the family members the older the young people are when if it's sibling matters we're talking about um, the more difficult that is to do it, contain it within a short period of time because the behaviours are more extensive, have more, more significance. Um, and uh, one of the issues with sibling harm is that the location of the, where the harms happened and the frequent is basically anywhere in the family home and elsewhere. Uh, it's more frequent. That's more intrusive. Well, we used to say it was more. Our data used to say it was more intrusive, but with the with the um, influence of the internet, uh, harmful sexual behaviour by children is actually more intrusive overall. One of the things with within family harm for sibling matters, the same as for father matters, is that a child is being harmed within their own family. They're actually cut off from any support within the family. So the other relationships actually are being disrupted by that. So it's no safe place. Lots of behaviour and being left to their own. Um, with sibling matters with, with younger children, once parents are supported to be in a good position to provide supervision and recognition, etc., we've found that they, it can even be managed by the siblings living in the same household. It's very tricky uh, to do that, but the older the kids are, the more extensive, the longer duration uh, a period of being apart needs to be established. If it's a biological sibling, the sibling has been harmed, it will be the first time in their entire life that they've been living in a place without the presence of a sibling uh, who's engaged in the harm, and then it needs to be taken from there. We can't then say, well, a period apart, then it'll all recover, and then they'll come back and be... Um, that's not necessarily the outcome. But it might be being apart and growing up in different households with other extended family, etc., and having a process of some restoration of relationship. Sometimes both siblings have lived in situations where they've both been subjected to the same harm, prior to the sibling harm. So they've got a shared trauma history. So they've got, they need to sort of have the opportunity to focus on um, processing that trauma uh, separately, but then in the work they do together, if, say if we've got a, 
an older sibling validating and speaking to the issue of harm of the other sibling, in that process there needs to be also space to recognise their shared experience. It just shows how important it is to have these, as Denise herself describes it, these uncomfortable conversations, isn't it? That the more we talk about it, that this happens, but there is a response and there can be healing, there can be, you know, success at the end of it. It's, it's good to know this. Yeah, I th there's a view that it, it's so difficult that parents don't know what to do. I think they only need a little bit of encouragement. Um, we've had a really interesting experience over the last year, we had a, a small video done that's on mm. YouTube. That's we'll have to put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> okay. And it's a, it's a primer. Um, there's a video for kids and there's a video for, for adults. It's two minutes, okay. which speaks to some of the emotional impact of, of having engaged in harmful sexual behaviour or, ha or having your child having done this. Name some feelings, etc. We wanted it as a primer to kids and families coming to us. When we've directed people after referral, but before we've seen them to the video, um, and they've looked at it, um, two things have happened. Um, spontaneously, the kids and their parents have started talking before we see them. And secondly, the kids have arrived wanting to engage in the therapy to, to sort of talk more about the behaviour. So a really simple thing that we thought might be a bit of advertorial or engagement, etc., seems to be having a really significant effect. And I think what it says is that families want to know how to deal with this. They don't want, of course, anything like this to happen in their family. But when it does, they need a resource and they need, they need support. So um, that's been heartening for us. And part of what we see the future holds is, is that not just ourselves, but across a range of agencies, a lot more resources being developed for young people and for their families. Isn't it good to hear that video can be a force for good? Yes. <laughs> that it's not just the harmful porn, but it's good to hear that we're taking a bit of that space back and actually providing really practical and helpful resources as well for, for people in this space. I, I do think the thing with harmful sexual behaviour, we shouldn't be frightened of it. We should actually face it and understand this is a significant issue and that there's a wide range of circumstances in which young people engage in those behaviours, sometimes through pure misidentification and misadventure, and then other times connected to other processes that need a lot more working through. I mentioned the three principles, I just re realised I forgot to mention wellbeing. So we've got safety, which of course we have to start with safety and have a safety present um, um, at all times. And we've got restitution, of course, the recovery of both the young person who did the harming and the young person who had been harmed can be really positively connected to that. But wellbeing. When we did our first significant follow-up of young people over 10 years ago now, we had access to a whole range of data and we were surprised when we realised this. We said, let's check the police data and the child protection data to see what happens to the young people, because we were being asked to follow up, do they actually do it again? Like all of the follow-up for harmful sexual behaviour programs is, is there recidivism? Like is there a repeat of sexual harm behaviour? That's what people want to know. Well, we asked whether the young people were a, um, a subject of a confirmed child protection report um, or a victim of a crime of personal violence. Um, and we were surprised at how high the figures were. So we had two groups, we had a group who we didn't work with and, we had a, and they were matched in pairs with the group we worked with. Uh, there were 10 girls in the study and 90 boys. 
of the ten girls, um, nine of the ten girls were harmed in the up to six years following the start date. And the and that was five out of five of the comparison girls and four out of five of the treatment group. Of the boys, it was it was almost right on 70% of the boys in the group we didn't work with who were harmed and 29% of the boys who we did work with who were harmed. Now that really challenged us and made us recalibrate and say, okay, these kids tell us they live in a violent, dangerous world. Actually, they are. And we should be focusing as much, in fact, it seems more, on their own well-being uh, in, a longer, in a longer term lens if we're going to do well. There's been subsequent life outcome studies, but no other study yet to repeat whether or not the kids are harmed. But the life outcome studies also measure this. The kids that have come into the uh, programs typically for harmful sexual behaviour, there's a large study um, that Professor Simon Hackett has been part of, um, don't have the happiest life outcomes. Don't appear in the stats for sexual harm or sexual abuse, etc but don't seem to have success in relationships, employment, training, and, and so on. So we, in terms of our holistic response, we're focusing on well-being for our children who we're working with, children and young people, because we know that's going to mediate better outcomes into the long-term future and get to produce a better effect overall. We're doing this for the human impact, but can I say, when we look at well-being in addition to the reducing um, um, harming or re-harming, there's a significant socio-economic impact of getting the work right as well. Yes, that it's, and that is an important aspect, that there's benefits for society ultimately as well. That's right, that's right. And, and a corollary kind of um, sits there as well that if we're attending well to the well-being of young people, actually the drivers or the things that might sit behind the harmful behaviour dissipate. Because as a person, they're, uh, they're actually being attended to in a, a way that they need and is developmentally matched for them. Wonderful. Thank you, Dale, so much for speaking to us on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.